Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. Romans chapter 8, and you'll find it on page 944 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 8, page 944. Let's pray now as we come to God's Word. Father, we thank you for the wonderful experience we already had of being in your church among your people. And uh, we pray now, Father, that you would keep us from distractions, help us to concentrate upon your word. And, uh, Father, with this magisterial chapter before us, we pray, uh, I pray you'd help me to explain it clearly so we get all the different uh, pieces connected and in our minds, and you give us the ability to discern your word to us uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, Romans chapter 8, and beginning at verse 1. Let's hear God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness as our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how would he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus the one, is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Do please sit down. Good morning. What a great chapter to have read out. Well, I suppose it's probably true that in all of literature, few words have had such a great impact as the ones we just heard read from Romans chapter 8. And when we read it as a whole, as we just have, it's uh, easy, or relatively easy, <laughs> to hear its sort of ringing declaration that there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And that purpose, namely, to assure every Christian of his eternal security, is my goal this morning. I want everyone here either to put their faith in Christ and so be assured of their eternal security, or to rest secured in the knowledge that because they are in Christ, there is Already, no condemnation. Now. That's, that's what I'm going to try and lead us to. And for that goal, to this end, I'm going to make four points. Here they are, if you're taking notes. First, 
Christ took our condemnation. That's the first point I'll make. Second, Christians walk by the Spirit of Christ. That's the second point. Third, Christian suffering has a purpose. And then fourth, Christian confidence is therefore unshakable. Unshakable. So those are the four points of that goal of no condemnation to be declared and experienced this morning. But of course this text, uh, Romans chapter 8, comes in the context of the whole book of Romans and indeed the entire Bible. And that this is not just landed out of context. Let me then, before I begin, briefly paint the landscape in which this is placed in those two ways, briefly. So the story so far of the Bible as we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, is that we were made in the image of God and placed as vice-regents over the creation by the creator God. As we saw a couple of weeks ago then, all was made good and we were made to be in a relationship with God of loving obedience. You might say the creation was designed to throb to the beats of the praise of the creator. And we were placed as its lead conductors in the Garden of Eden. And yet, as we saw in the subsequent week in Genesis 3, we rebelled against this created purpose and tried instead to become our own little gods over our own little sphere of influence. And in so doing, we came under the just condemnation of God, estranged from him and each other as a consequence, expelled by him from the Garden, and therefore set to exist in a world under a curse. You see, God in his character as just and holy must uphold the moral fabric of the universe. He must, and so declared our death. But also God in his character and his nature as loving and gracious, he also declared the promise to the woman of the seed of the woman, as we saw, then the coming serpent crusher who would in time to come redeem us. And so God called Abraham, promised to him a seed that would bring blessing through him on all nations, took his people to Egypt from where he redeemed them and placed them in the promised land under his rule and as his people. And the promise of the great prophet to come, like Moses. And then later, the, as was expressed, the eternal son of David to come. Or the new heart and the new spirit, as was promised through the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah, of the new covenant, this promise all the way from Genesis 3, reverberated through his people's rebellion, exile to Babylon, their return Until the anointed one, the Christ, arrived to redeem his people from every tribe and nation and language. And then the story of Romans so far as it were is that its author, in Romans chapter 8 then, is in the context of the book of Romans, a letter from the Apostle Paul, of course. Uh, Even the most critical scholars agree it was written by Paul. Uh, Paul called by Christ himself... To take this gospel 
to all nations. Now, as he writes, he is set to return to Jerusalem at the completion of his third missionary journey. He he writes to the Romans at the beginning, we think probably of A.D. 57, from the city of Corinth, perhaps staying in a house of a friend there, Gaius, with Tertius, another friend who will be the secretary who helps him pen this letter. And he writes to the Romans, asking Rome for his help, for help for his further missionary work to Spain that is on his heart. And, And in the meantime, in this long discourse on the gospel, he, Paul explains the gospel he preached against the detractors, the enemies that he had, the gospel, the true gospel that he preached for Jew and Gentile alike. And this gospel, as he said, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, reflecting the Genesis 2, Genesis 3 hinge that we saw last week, that there is then no one righteous, not one, that in Christ, though, we may be declared righteous by faith and so have the spirit of Christ, the new life of joy and peace. And as he said right before this in chapters 6 and 7, this does not, he's quick to say, mean that we can just sin without, any, without it mattering, no. Nor does it mean that even as a Christian we no longer struggle with sins. And so then he comes to chapter 8, the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. Explain that therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so here we come to this chapter whose theme is that, no condemnation, the security of all those in Christ. That's the goal of this passage and my goal this morning to declare that and for you to experience that. And there are four points to that end. And the first is this, Christ took our condemnation. Christ took our condemnation. So look down with me at the first four verses, if you will. And these first four verses are, in my view, the foundation to this chapter. And like all foundations, they need to be laid carefully. So we're just going to spend, in terms of time, a little more on these first four verses. Don't think we'll spend just as long on each of the next four verses, you know, for, for this length of the sermon. But this is the foundation, so we need to lay that foundation carefully and Paul does in great exactitude here, very carefully. And he gives three reasons why there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, each making this point that it's because Christ took our condemnation. Here are the three reasons. One, verse two, Christ freed us from the law of death to the spirit of life. Now, those of you who are Paul's scholars or have read Romans many times will know that Paul uses the word law in several different ways in his writings and even in the letter to the Romans. And so in verse 21 to 23 of chapter 7, the law there is used as a principle. But then in verse 7 of the same chapter, it means Moses' law, specifically. And then verse 1, it means either the Jewish or the Roman law, uh, not sure myself which there, but one or the other. But then chapter 2, verse 15, it means conscience, uh, what Wordsworth called the stern daughter of the voice of God, conscience. But then in chapter 3, verse 19, law means the whole Old Testament. So Paul is quoted from Psalms and uh, Isaiah as, as, as well, or Isaiah, as you might say, and and so he means the whole Old Testament there by the law. 
And then the most, I think, uh, relevant uh, reference in Romans to the passage we're looking at, Romans chapter 3, verse 27, there it means again a principle, but by connecting it to this phrase, he, he says, the law of faith. And he uses it then in that context clearly to refer to the gospel, the law of faith. And Paul's not just confused by this wide-ranging use of this one word. No, as F.F. Bruce, the great scholar, established, there's a similarly wide-ranging use of law in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it seems to me Paul was probably just reflecting that familiarity with the Scriptures in, in Greek, in the Old Testament. And so then, by the law of the Spirit of life, in verse 2 then, it seems to me Paul means the same as the law of faith in chapter 3, verse 27. That is, the power of the gospel to bring life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean then by the law of sin and death? Well, that's a little easier, I think. Paul means the condemnation that comes from our flesh, that is, our sinful nature, being unable and unwilling to keep God's law, whether written or internal in our hearts. And so one, Christ freed us from the law of death to the spirit of life. Well, how did he do that? Two, God sent, it's the gospel, God sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And this is verse three. Now here it says, Paul says, Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh, which is an interesting phrase, but it's put there like this for this reason. As John Stott said, His humanity, Jesus' humanity, was both real and sinless simultaneously. Hence, Paul says, the likeness of sinful flesh. Very concentrated phrase to indicate that. Jesus was sent, Paul says, for sin. And that's a phrase used in the Old Testament in Leviticus and then picked up in the New Testament in Hebrews specifically as meaning a sin offering. So in this way, Paul says, God condemned sin in the flesh. That is here, meaning in Christ. This flesh being another word that in Paul has multiple uses. Here meaning the real sinless body of Jesus. Though made sin for our sins, as Paul puts the same profound meaning of the atonement in in another way in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. So he condemned sin in the flesh, that is, in Christ. Or Christ took our condemnation. God sent his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, we are not condemned. He took our condemnation. See? And then 3, verse 4. So that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. God, in his character, his holiness, must uphold the moral fabric of the universe. And he has, verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. Now this is a very tricky verse with several different possible options that don't make a great deal of difference to how you interpret the rest of the chapter, but of themselves are important. And I have my own opinion. Let me give you the options. They are these. This verse either means the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Now, Paul clearly teaches that in many other places. The question is whether it means it here. But it either means the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us or the gradual impartation of Christ's righteousness in us, that is, by the ongoing work of the Spirit becoming more like Jesus, or some think both, or some think imputation in the first part of the verse and the other in the second part of the verse, you see. 
What do I think? Well, along with Lloyd-Jones and John Stott, which are eminent people to quote in this regard, though not Charles Hodge, who uh, was, well, is, I guess, he's in glory now, uh, no, not Charles Hodge, who's equally eminent, um, but I think this verse means the gradual impartation of Christ's righteousness in us by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean I don't believe the imputation in other places as taught. Of course, I do and preach that many times. But here, I think, he's talking about the ongoing work of the Spirit. Why? Because it is in us, he says. Then he says it's by the walk of the Spirit. And walk is an active metaphor, you see. And because this, then, is the subject to which Paul will now turn in the next section. But if you hold one of those other views, it won't make a lot of difference to you following what I'm about to say. So there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ took our condemnation. How? By freeing us from the law of death to the law of the spirit of life. How? As God sent his sacrifice, his son as a sacrifice for sin, so that the whole moral fabric of the universe, the character of God is upheld, so that we might become the holy people that God has designed to redeem. That's the foundation, you see. And with this foundation in place, he next uh, puts up the walls of this house of assurance. I think that's a helpful metaphor, this passage, as a foundation and the walls. He puts up the walls of the house of assurance by addressing the question of, hey, how about un- what about ongoing sin? And then what about suffering? And he'll address those two questions next. So first, no condemnation because Christ took our condemnation, verses 1 to 4. Second, because Christians walk by the Spirit. Now this, my friends, is from verses 5 through to verse 17. And if Again, if you could scan down that passage with me, I think you'll see that Paul here has a basic contrast. Paul is contrasting life by the Spirit with death by the flesh. And you may recall that Paul has a similar contrast, if you know your Bibles, in Galatians chapter 5. But here he's filling out that teaching there in Galatians. And he's building upon that theology a fuller description so there's a contrast. On the one hand, he is saying, those who live according to the flesh are really dying. This, is, says, he says, is because their minds, what we might call their attitude or their mindset or their worldview, is on what the flesh desires. And by flesh, or socks in Greek, Paul here means our fallen egocentric human nature, as Cranfield put it, or the sin-dominated self, as Zeisler put it. That is, there's a certain controlling attitude, mindset, disposition that characterizes people outside of Christ. Now, that does not mean that necessarily they indulge in obvious public gross evil. It could be subtle and selfish, private sins as well. But at root, Paul is saying, this attitude is being what he calls hostile to God. That is still in Genesis 3. That is at war with him. Still continuing Adam and Eve's rebellion against God's rule. That rebellion can appear nice or polite. But foundationally, ultimately, it does not submit to God's law, Paul says. In fact, he says, it cannot And so a mindset that stems from a sinful nature leads to a lifestyle that does not follow God's law. And this in turn leads inevitably to experiencing God's sentence on his rebels of death. 
So he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And all this means that Paul will have no truck with those who say that his gospel of free grace is a license to sin. No, he says, those who live according to the flesh are really dying, on the one hand. But by contrast, those who live by the Spirit have life and peace. Their mindset, attitude, controlling disposition is on what the Spirit desires. So if you're a Christian, then you have the Spirit of Christ. You are now no longer condemned, estranged, under the curse. But as Christ was condemned in your place, you receive the Holy Spirit of Christ and you have new life and peace with God through faith in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And those in Christ Jesus must necessarily then have the Spirit of Christ. You see. And working out the objective state standard they have in Christ through a gradual change lifestyle through the work of the Spirit of Christ. And Paul says this has three lifeful and peaceful consequences. One, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ will be your reality one day as well, as you are in Christ. Two, we are debtors to the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, my friends, this section alone from verses 12 to 14 could be, you know, a long or several sermon, long sermons, you know. Uh, a 10-week sermon series on this alone, I think. But let me just give you the, the, the grasp, some handles on it. Paul is saying, as we've been crucified with Christ, so we carry on putting to death the old nature by the work of the Spirit who dwells within us. It is then a fight to the death, if you like. Or look at it this way. We dig out the roots of remaining sin and we stare at its ugliness And then we're done with it. This is what the Puritans called mortification. (laughs) And it is a lost art. And an undertaught emphasis from our pulpits. Now note, it is by the Spirit. It is not legalism. In fact, we cannot do this unless we are in Christ. It is by the Spirit. But for Paul, it is us in his strength... But it is us who must initiate and take action. Now you say, why should I go through such hard work? Well, Paul gives us the motivation here too. He says it is life and peace. In other words, the objective reality of no condemnation increasingly becomes our subjective experience. Or to put it another way, Paul is saying that holiness is the path to happiness. You want to be happy? Get holy, he say. Three. Despite this, because we're in Christ, we still no longer have the spirit of fear, but of adoption. We cry out. And I think, again, there's been a lot of discussion about this part, but it seems to me that he's using the words that Jesus used in his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, And we too, in Christ, now cry this intimate shout, if you like, to our Father God, Abba, Father, 
secure in our standing before God now. No condemnation. And so using the language of a child to his papa in the heat of the battle of ongoing mortification. Not, not, my, not my will, but your will be done. Abba, Father. And that is the spirit, not of fear, but of adoption or sonship. And all this then is to say that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, not only because Christ took our condemnation, but also because those in Christ Jesus walk by the Spirit of Christ Jesus. That is the path of life and peace, of experiencing no condemnation. That is the way of happiness. That is the method of experiencing more and more subjectively the objective reality of no condemnation. The whole nature, the mindset, the lifestyle, the flesh leads to death. But by the spirit, the mindset, the mortification, the intimacy, that's the path to life. Well, having considered then the ongoing battle with sin of the Christian, he now considers the next question that inevitably someone who's following his argument would raise, which is what about suffering? He considers the ongoing present reality of suffering for the Christian. So he said, no condemnation because first Christ took our condemnation. Second, because Christians walk by the Spirit. And then third, Christian suffering has a purpose. Now again, this is a long section from verse 18 to 30. Uh, 18 to 30 and I will summarize it with you. It begins perhaps with a transitional phrase at the end of verse 17. But it's such an important topic Christian suffering and the purpose that Paul declares here is so significant. Listen in. Paul gives three reasons why Christian suffering has a purpose. One, it is not worth comparing. That is, it is incomparable with the glory. Incomparable. So as Christ died and rose again, yes, we who follow him must Take up our cross, die to ourselves, experience the opposition of the world. Not, however radical you get in your holiness or your discipline or your following of Jesus, none of that is a cause of your salvation. Not as a cause of our salvation, but as a part of the process that God uses to make us holy and prepare us for glory. So as Paul's already said in Romans chapter 5, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. And that hope, he now says, the glory, uh, perhaps as uh, the great John Murray wondered here, not just the experience of the glory of heaven, but the God of glory himself. That is incomparable with the suffering that we experience now. Not worth comparing, incomparable. Uh, Martin Luther has a wonderful phrase at this point that I think is worth quoting to you. It is so good. This is what Martin Luther says. See how he contracts the suffering of the world into a single drop and a tiny spark whilst he expands its glory into a mighty ocean and a blaze of fire. Your sufferings, however real, nonetheless, cannot be compared with glory. Paul is saying, they can only be contrasted. 
You can compare a first-year violinist with Yehudi Menu and however great the comparison. Saying you simply cannot compare suffering with the glory that is to be revealed. Incomparable. Two, it's like childbirth. There's a whole lot of groaning that goes on in this passage. You may have noticed when we read it out. Creation groans, we groan, even the spirit groans, uh, literally wordlessly. But none of this is meaningless, pointless, or purposeless. None of this groaning is without purpose because, he says, it's like the groans that indicate a delivery is coming soon. That's the picture. So creation was subjected to frustration, referring to Genesis 3 and the curse. But this was in hope that the revelation of the sons of God, those who believe in Christ, would come and that these children would be revealed. And we ourselves as Christians also experience this groaning because we are waiting for our full adoption as the sons of God, the adoption of our bodies and the new resurre- the resurrection to come of the new body that we will receive. So there are things that we do not understand about our suffering, for sure. But he's saying we do know that the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, and we know that we were saved in hope of the glory that is incomparable with our suffering, and even the Spirit. Again, there's a lot we could teach on this, and perhaps sometime we'll study these parts at greater length, but even the Spirit wordlessly intercedes for us when we face circumstances about which we do not know God's will. And so there's there's groaning in this present world of pain, yes. But for the Christian, the groaning is is like a childbirth coming. And because of that, he says, we wait eagerly, a phrase again with the picture in it, a bit like our heads raised, perhaps like a child peering over a a window sill or window frame on tiptoe eagerly looking out, craning his neck to see whether daddy is coming home. Three, it is the plan. And so these profound verses, verses 28 to 30, they, they pull back from the incomparable suffering, the groaning like childbirth to scan from eternity past to eternity future. And realize that it is all under God's sovereign plan and according to God's sovereign purpose. There is a working together, a with working, a co-working of all things by God for those who love him. And this well-known verse often uses a sort of bumper sticker when set in the context of Romans, comes with, with fresh power. And so the calling is what is called the effectual calling through the gospel. That is, those who hear the gospel as it is preached and put their faith in Christ are so called. Those he foreknew is the intimate knowledge of God as The prophet Amos says, God speaking through Amos, you only have I known. The foreloving, as John Murray put it. 
the knowledge of God's love for us, predestined, called, justified, glorified. As many have noticed, the word sanctified is missed out in this sort of list, not because it's not required. He's described the necessity of putting to death the deeds of the body already, but but because sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is part of the process toward glorification. F.S. Bruce has a wonderful way of putting it. Let me quote that to you. Sanctification, that is becoming more like Jesus, is glory begun. Not a narrow-minded, negative, no, glory begun. Sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is glory begun. If you have any other idea of what sanctification or holiness is like, Replace it with glory begun. Sanctification is glory begun. Glory is sanctification consummated or fulfilled. So this this plan is so certain now that Paul dares. Someone said this is the most daring use of a tense in the whole New Testament. This plan is so certain that Paul dares to use the past tense for the glorification. Glorified. From the perspective of eternity, it is done. So Christian suffering then has a purpose. Why? Because it is incomparable with the glory. It is like a, a childbirth. And it is God's plan for our glory to come, so certain that it may be said to be done in the past. Well, having shown then that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus by laying the foundation that Christ took our condemnation by showing us that those who are in Christ walk by the Spirit, that those in Christ experience suffering, but that suffering has a glorious and certain purpose. Now, finally... Paul, as it was, using the same image of foundation and raising the houses of uh, the walls of the house of security, Paul, as it were, scales the fortress of the security of the Christian that has been built. He, as it were, ascends the stairs to the battlements. <laughs> and he looks out over the, the land surrounding, as it were, and he, he issues now a series of challenges to anyone and anything all of which are unanswerable and remain unanswered. So fourth then, Christian confidence is unshakable. And these are these famous words from verse 31 to 39. But it's not just a purple patch of rhythmic poetry-like prose. It is a series of logical challenges based upon the foundation, the castle security, the worldview, the reality of the situation that he has now built, which cannot be met, none of those challenges, by any adversary in the entire universe, human, natural, or even spiritual. And so then he starts with, what then shall we say, indicating he's referring back to similar questions which he has laced his argument ever since the end of chapter 5. He's picking up these threads and now is the conclusion. What then shall we say? Five unanswered challenges briefly. One, 
If God is for us, who can be against us? No, Paul doesn't just say, do you have any enemies? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We can have many opponents, but if God is for us, none of them can stand and none of them do. He issues the challenge from the battlement and there is silence. Two, if God gave us his son, how will he not also give us all things? So God gave his only son for us then, while we may at times feel we lack good things. We know that in the end we can lack no true good thing. Three, who will accuse us if God justifies us? If God, the judge, declares us righteous, then no one else can accuse us anymore. Four, if Christ who died and rose again intercedes for us at the right hand of God. You've got to get the sort of picture language. So there's the throne, the king. The right hand is the place of authority. And by the way, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is just interwoven everywhere through this. That would be another whole sermon, the Trinity in Romans 8. It's just interwoven everywhere. So if Christ who died and rose again intercedes for us at the right hand of God, that is ascended on high in the place of authority, interceding for us, Who can condemn us? He's referring back to there be no condemnation. He's he's connecting the theme. Who can condemn us? And the answer is that with Christ as our intercessor, there is no one who can condemn us. And five, and in conclusion then, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? With each of these logical questions built upon the foundation, the walls of the house of security, standing on the battlements of the security of the Christian, looking out over enemy territory, and the only answer, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ, is nothing. Nothing. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 44, a psalm used later to talk about the suffering of God's people Uh, for him and he surveys all of reality having asked his questions from the battlements of security and concludes that there is nothing nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ he lists them all not death not life not angels not rulers not present not future not powers nothing in creation however big and wide you get however bad it gets not Trouble, not distress, not persecution. Think of the of Emperor Nero. Think of our brothers and sisters suffering in Africa, not persecution. Not famine, not nakedness. Not danger, not even the sword of death. Nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. And if you're not, 
And now you know why you need to believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's just pause to answer the accusations of our own heart with the truth of what Paul has declared about Jesus. Feeling condemned, Christ took our condemnation. Feeling loveless, who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Feeling judged, it is God who justifies. Father, I pray as we come now to the end of the service and about to sing a hymn and then go our way that this truth would continue to work in our minds and hearts. Father, I pray if there are some here who don't yet know you that you would cause them to hide themselves in you through Christ's faith in him. Father, I pray that you would remove the uh, experience of feeling condemned and replace it with the objective truth of now no condemnation. Father, I do also pray that you would protect any of us here from thinking this means that we can just do the deeds of the flesh. I realize that is the path to death. Instead, that we will walk by the Spirit. Father, I pray you give each of us fresh determination to put to death the deeds of the body knowing that these things are really death and that our happiness is found in our growing holiness our Christ likeness Father we bow before you and thank you for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.